So how's everybody doing this morning? Are you, are you caffeinated? Are you caffeinated enough to sing a day crescendo? You want to do this? Everybody hum. Mm, la, sing la. La. Everybody pick a note. Remember how to stagger your breathing? La. And we're going to keep this note going. Now sing amen. Amen. Beautiful. Okay, now we're going to do a decrescendo. So we're going to do a loud ah and men, and then we're going to decrescendo. But don't let the tone die. Keep, keep it going it, just very softly at the end. And, and listen to the intensity of the quiet part. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Beautiful. Ooh, that was a good one. I gave you chills. <laughs> so this is just the metaphor for how we do Advent at Redemption Church. We try to front load our activities, and we should hopefully be in the turn right now toward Christmas Eve, week from today. And um, this next week, we are concentrating on opening up space somehow. So... Whatever that means for you, I've heard of people just turning off the TV at night, just no TV, just open space. Um, if you have days off that you could take before the end of the year, take off work, take a half day, go for a walk in nature, go to a museum, spend some time alone, just find some kind of contemplative space and just be thinking about what it means to make room for, for God to be incarnated in your life for God to happen to you once again this Christmas. Um, that's where we're headed in this final week of Advent. About 15 years ago, the author Phyllis Tickle, which is one of the all-time great names ever, Phyllis Tickle, wrote um, a book called The Great Emergence. And in this book, she said that every 500 years, the church has a giant rummage sale of human wisdom. That's what she said. The, the kind of wisdom that's like embedded in institutions um, and cultures and in people. So it's wisdom you can't Google, you know. It's passed from person to person and family to family and parent to child and friend to friend. And it's embodied in institutions, things like the church or education, art, government, literature. And, and Tickle says, every 500 years, I can't say her name without laughing, T Tickle says... It says, I feel like I do it, should do it in an Elmo voice, but I'm not going to do that. Um, that like every 500 years, we just sell off a massive amount of, of human wisdom, the kind that's been amassed and embedded in cultures over the course of centuries. And then we start purging old forms of spirituality and religion in particular and trying to replace them with new ones. And so, like, for instance, 500 years ago, there was a giant rummage sale known as the Reformation. And 500 years before that was the great schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church that created the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
500 years before that was the Constantinian shift that we talked about during the saints series and the birth of monasticism. And before that 500 years, you're at the birth of Christianity itself and the church and this new movement of the spirit among people. And Tickle says you can, you can kind of track this progress, this pattern. Every 500 years, the church has a giant rummage sale. And it's always kind of this really disorienting season for the people of God. As the tradition has to be re-embodied and re-imagined. And there's tons of conflict and upheaval, but also some renewal that happens. And part of why she's writing this book is because today... It's 500 years since the last one. And we are in the midst of a massive rummage sale and a a season of change and disorientation. It started actually almost a century ago. You know, before World War I, there was all this optimism about the world. You know, late 1800s, early 1900s, people were convinced that because of advances in science and technology and whatever, politics, um, religion, medicine, technology, that humanity was going to solve all the world pro- world's problems. I just really believed this. And then came World War I and then World War II, where technology created these massive arsenals and war machines that ravaged Europe. I mean, the Holocaust was very scientific, you know? Science used for genocide. The nuclear age, science gave humanity the ability to literally eradicate human life from the planet. And all that optimism after those wars just gave way to deep disorientation and um, an era that's sometimes called post-modernity. And it's marked by a loss of faith in institutions, in like overarching meta-narratives, and including a loss of faith in God and even human potential. A loss of consensus about what's truth and who gets to decide and and a, a pronounced renewal of the clash between religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And over the last few weeks, we've been acknowledging as well the way that this is playing out in our own lifetimes, things like rising authoritarianism, looming climate change, economic and racial injustice, religious nationalism, housing and healthcare costs spiraling, income inequality, um, wars, political unrest, flagging democracy, just a culture that's bitterly divided and sort of siloed up and at each other's throats a ton of unprocessed trauma, a lot of it stemming from the pandemic. These powerful ideologies at work now, pitting us against one another, fueling these outbursts of hatred and rage and even violence. And just as a pastor, I just sit with a lot of you guys who are worried about our future, and I am too, to an extent that honestly I haven't seen before in my 35 years of ministry. And people react to this kind of thing in, in different ways. You know, I, I see a lot of, today, anger and grievance, um, which is troubling. I think maybe the, the two most pronounced reactions to this, though, are cynicism and sentimentality. I'm, I'm going to make a case for this because I, re- I really think these are two very dangerous things. You know, the cynic looks at the world and says, it's just hopelessly broken. 
Like love can work for a while, but it always falls apart. The author Oscar Wilde, he has this great line about it. He says, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Like they can tell you what things cost, but not what they're worth. They can name like the brokenness of the world, but the cynic always kind of stands at a safe distance and pretends not to participate. It's a, it's a form of escapism or non-participation that supposes, like, if I don't risk anything here, I can't be disappointed or get hurt. But, of course, this never works because we're designed for relationships. We're made to participate in culture. We have to. We're driven to. We have to chase things. We need to chase after something that matters to us to have meaning in life. And so cynicism leads, like, directly to depression and despair and nihilism and really the loss of hope and then on the the other extreme you have sentimentality um, the sentimentalist looks at the world and and just sees hearts and flowers man and it's they, they just try to ignore the dark side of things and live off happy feelings with their heads in the sands they just refuse to see the world as it is Oscar Wilde commented on this one, too. He said, a sentimentalist is simply one who wants to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. So they, they live in a pretend world where everything's fine. It reminds me of that meme. Do you, have, you, have you seen this meme? I send this to people all the time. It's my favorite one. This is fine. Everything's on fire. This is fine. Everything's fine. That's sentimentality. It's, it's a form of escapism, right? They just ignore all the problems and, and just assume somebody will, somebody somewhere will solve this. And these two groups kind of end up in the same place. They both disengage from their responsibility for the future. The cynic is like, you know, everything's terrible. Why bother to work for change? And the sentimentalist is like, everything's fine. Nothing smells. It's going to be fine. Like, we'll, we'll figure this out. And, and around the holidays, I think, you can really kind of tell who, who the cynics and the sentimentalists are. You know what I mean? Like, this, this is a big time of year for cynical people and sentimental people. The cynics just rip all things Christmas. They started the first time they saw a decoration. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. And then it's just been that way since then. <laughs> and then the sentimentalists, they, they just want the feels that come with Christmas time and avoid the serious matters. And so during Advent, we try to train ourselves not to do either one of those things, but to try to open up a space between cynicism and sentimentality. And the name of that space in our tradition is hope. Hope, it, it kind of takes the best of the other, other two options. So it, instead of like, engaging it, it or, or disengaging, it engages, hope engages deeply with the world as it is, for better or for worse. So hope, it, it kind of takes the best of cynicism, its ability to tell the truth about the brokenness of the world, but then grabs the best of sentimentality, this, this belief that things can work out if, if we want them to, if we work for them. And, and so hope is able to say, yeah, thing, things are a mess, like things are really broken, but they don't have to be so broken. 
but they don't check out like the cynic, hopeful people, or pretend like the sentimentalist. Hope says we have to stay engaged with the world and respond to the brokenness with love and self-sacrifice, with connection and belonging, with healing and reconciliation. And Hope says if we work together, laying down our lives for each other, then we can begin to embody a, a different future, one that's not quite so broken, you know, one where people can actually find flourishing and wholeness. Hope says things are, are broken now, but they don't have to be. The, if the world is what we make of it, then we can make a better world. That's hope. And it's, it's really what we're looking for in the midst of the giant rummage sale of our time. The space between cynicism and sentimentality. A place of hope that can tell the truth about the world, but imagine a, a different future, a better one. And then to let that vision of a better future fire us into the world. To just be deeply engaged and to work for that future. It's the kind of thing that happened to a lot of people during the Reformation and the Great Schism and uh, uh, the rummage sales of, of other areas, eras, the Constantinian shift, the, the birth of Christianity. And then 500 years then before that, there was another giant rummage sale known as exile, a time in which the prophet Isaiah was writing in the midst of a really dark time, he began to imagine a different kind of leader for Israel. In Isaiah 61, he wrote, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. It's funny, the, the passage begins, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Word spirit there is ruach. It, it literally means wind. The winds of God are blowing again after a long period of quiet. And then you have this litany of verbs there to proclaim, bind up, release, comfort, provide, and bestow. These, if you think about it, these are all ministries to the weak, to the broken ones, the powerless, the brokenhearted. God is, the wind is blowing. God's working on their behalf to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. That was my nickname in high school. A Just kidding. It was not. I think I weighed 110 pounds. <laughs> Sorry. They will be <laughs> derailed everything. They, they, they will be called oaks of righteousness, planting the Lord for display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I love this. So it's all these insteads, right? There are options here. Beauty instead of ashes. Joy instead of mourning. Praise instead of despair. It's kind of instead of cynical stuff. And, and, and it inspired in the people this hope that God is going to change their situation. And then verse 8, 
the voice speaking changes. Instead of Isaiah's voice, now suddenly it's the voice of the Lord. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. So first the prophet speaks, and then the Lord speaks. Right? The, pr- the promise I made to your, your forefathers, it still applies. I'm still going to raise you up and bless you so you can be a blessing. And this is, this is huge because, you know, Jewish hope springs not from like knowledge or insight or doctrines or beliefs or even from some kind of like optimism about the future. Jewish hope is rooted in their unique relationship to God. Not in political shrewdness, not in their army or power or wealth. In fact, all of that stuff had become such a distraction, God had sort of removed it from the equation. That's exile. And then suddenly, from out of nowhere, the wind starts to blow again. And Isaiah starts to imagine a deliverer, a servant of God. He he says the phrase, he has anointed me. And that word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. um, We get the word Messiah from that word. Isaiah is beginning to imagine an anointed one, a Messiah who is anointed to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. I mean, this is, this is an interesting list here. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoner. That's who Messiah comes for. And it says the anointed one will do two things in particular. Um, first, He'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he'll proclaim the day of vengeance for our God. And the year of the Lord's favor, we've talked about this before. It's a particular thing. It actually stems from Leviticus, if you remember our study of that. And and what it's about is restoration. And it's linked to all the sabbatical stuff or Sabbath stuff. So every seven days, you take a Sabbath day, and this is for the restoration of their bodies. And every seven years is a sabbatical year where you don't plant or reap. And this is for the restoration of the land. And then every seven sets of seven years on the 50th year was the year of Jubilee where they kind of hit reset on the economy. And all debts are forgiven. Land returns to its original family owner. Slaves are set free. Prisoners are released. And so for anybody who is kind of on the outs, on the margins of culture, they're restored to a place where they can flourish and find wholeness again. And, and this, is, this is the point of it, is this restoration. They can flourish as God intended. And they called this year the Jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favor. So that's what that image means. And this is what the anointed is going to bring. And then, not only that, the anointed will bring the day of vengeance for our God, which is what they wanted. I mean, Babylon was ruthless to the Israelites, and they were dying for a little payback. And as the prophet began to imagine God moving again, sending the anointed one to help, it it was all this excitement 
that God would cause this reversal of fortune for Israel. And they began to hope. And this is actually, this is why we read Isaiah a lot during, during the season of Advent. Because we too live in a day where we long for a reversal of fortune, you know? We're living in this 500-year rummage sale. I mean, it's really kind of quite something to be alive right now. And we all experience the pain and disorientation of just the brokenness and fragmentation of our world and the struggles that we listed earlier. And this creates in us a longing for a good leader who can restore us to happiness. And if we get a little vengeance on our enemies, you know, that might be a little bit nice too. And if help doesn't come, and it often doesn't, then it's, it's really easy to slide into cynicism or, or sentimentality. Do you have a favorite, by the way? How many are like, I go cynical? How many are like, I go more sentimental? I don't want to. That one's way harder to admit, I think. Yeah. That's why we turn to the prophet during, during Advent. And during that time, some of the teachers um, reached back to that time of Isaiah. You know, Israel had, um, much later on, when they returned to Jerusalem, like this would be Nehemiah and Ezra, and then even later, they were living under foreign control. In the time of Christ, they were living under Roman control, and the Romans were rough. And there were plenty of cynics in Jerusalem, sentimentalists, and, and they began to then, in that era, reach back to Isaiah again and read those texts and use his teaching almost like a roadmap to help them navigate the confusion and pain of Roman occupation. And they began to pray for a Messiah to come and lead Israel out of darkness and usher in a year of jubilee and get a little vengeance on the Romans. And it was into that situation Jesus was born. And he was raised a devout Jew and um, became a carpenter up in Nazareth. And then he began to, to travel and teach. It's interesting, if you know the Gospel of Luke, um, it's kind of the, it, Luke 2, this is where the Christmas story is. You know, we read it a lot this, this time of year. It has all the angels and the shepherds and all that stuff. Then it tells of Christ's dedication at the temple when he was seven days old. Um, and so it's like his bris. And then uh, it tells of then him being left behind at the temple when he's 12 years old. Remember that story? And then it tells of his baptism in the Jordan River and his temptation in the wilderness. And then he goes, all that's down by Jerusalem. He travels all the way back up to Nazareth, to his hometown, to sort of launch his ministry. And he went to the synagogue on Sabbath, and they ask him to teach. And what does he do? He sits down opens the scroll of Isaiah, rolls it all the way down here to the end. And this is what he read in his very first sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it, it says he rolled up the scroll, which took a while, Everybody's kind of waiting. What's he going to say? 
gave the scroll back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. His first public teaching, when he's going to like explain what he's up to, what his mission is, and he goes to Isaiah 61, and he reads about the Spirit of the Lord, who is proclaiming gospel good news to, to the poor. And did you notice what he left out? You may notice the day of vengeance. He didn't say that part. It's gone from his reading. And he's signaling him. He's not, he knows Isaiah. He was reading the scroll. He's saying, this, this isn't, my mission isn't about vengeance. It's about mercy and love and grace. And he's saying, I'm an, the anointed one. That's how he understood himself. The Messiah. The Messiah is not concerned with vengeance or militarism or armies or war. And, you know, when we read Isaiah earlier, the, the, um, Isaiah 61 has, has two voices. There's the voice of the prophet Isaiah proclaiming hope and then the voice of God saying, we're still part, we're still connected I'm still your God. You're still my people. And now in, in Luke 4, you have Jesus quoting that same passage, but there's not two voices. There's one voice because the prophet and the Lord have, have come together in one person, joining God in humanity, like signaling, like we're not far from God. We're not disconnected. And he sat down and he said, this is today. Today this is being fulfilled. I'm the one. This is my mission. And I'm proclaiming good news to the poor, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. And then he leaves out the vengeance part. It's just going to be mercy from here on out. If you want to know why they later killed him, it's a pretty good place to start. Jesus is saying, like, God is about restoring stuff, all the broken things. And just as it inspired Isaiah and his fellow Israelites, just as it inspired Christ and his followers, this passage in Isaiah is meant to inspire us during the season of Advent. God is inviting all of us into this kind of relationship through which God can restore all the broken things. That's the very essence of the gospel. And so here in the midst of our postmodern rummage sale, I think it's possible that God wants us to find reason to hope that maybe the wind is still blowing, you know. And to understand what God is doing, we have to talk about gravity, which I know seems like a left turn, but... Hear me out. Um, un until Einstein, you know, people thought gravity was this force pulling toward the Earth's center that just kept humans glued to the ground and made apples fall from trees and kept the moon circling around the Earth. It was like a, a force coming from the center of the Earth. And then came Einstein, and he said, what if gravity isn't like a force, it's like a field instead? 
So I, I, I just imagine it's like a big trampoline. Imagine there's a huge trampoline right in front of us, and we put all kinds of balls uh, on it, like a little tennis ball, a golf ball, big um, bowling balls, and all different things, volleyballs, basketballs. They're all over this. And then you had a giant arm, and you could just reach out into the center and press down on the trampoline, just push it down like a, a foot. What would happen to all the spheres on this thing? They would... The ones that are light enough or close enough to that center, they would begin to roll toward the center. The lighter ones first, those that are near, drawn toward that new center. That, that's more like how gravity works. It's like a field. And I, honestly, I really think what God is doing in our time is reaching into the center of the world and the church of Christianity and pushing God's finger down and making like a new gravitational center and drawing people from all across these what used to be boundaries between us the divisions that separate us they just don't matter anymore the wind is blowing the spirit is leading people are being moved toward this new center and as they are they move closer to one another and closer to God and it's not about vengeance it's about mercy in fact, none of the old fights and vendettas and cries for vengeance have a place at this new center. I mean, this is why fundamentalists don't want to be part of it, really. They want to fight about who's in and out. And Christians have been doing this since the beginning. And, and by the way, many of those are rooted in these 500-year rummage sales, all of which resulted in some kind of schism or split. But those who are being pulled to this this new center, they're kind of tired of that, you know? They're more interested in what unites than what divides. And what if God is, is really moving in the world today and establishing this new center that doesn't need the boundaries, um, anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free. We're in the midst of a 500-year shift, I think, in, in the world right now. And it can be very disorienting. That's not, that's really not in question. And it's tempting to be cynical. And it's tempting to just choose sentimentality. But I really do think God's reaching down into the heart of God's church and and, and pressing a new center and drawing people out from our camps and establishing a new center of gravity for the people of God. I've talked about this before. I think there are six characteristics of this, and I hope these things describe us as, as a church. Um, I think in this new center, there is an emphasis on Jesus and his way of life. So there's a, a focus on the Gospels and the Bible Jesus read. There's an emphasis on the great tradition of the church, the liturgies and wisdom that are embedded in our history, in our tradition. There's an emphasis on contemplative prayer, you know, cultivating a sensitivity to the God who is everywhere and always. There's an emphasis on the love of God as revealed in Christ, God, that God is, before God is anything else, God is love. And love is defined as self-sacrifice. There's an emphasis on the peaceable kingdom 
this idea that God has rejected violence, that God is establishing a new center, um, not through coercion or violence, but through peace, through reconciliation. And then lastly, there's this ecumenical hope that happens, this hopefulness that comes when people are drawn from different backgrounds, different traditions. And I honestly think this is what's happening in the world. My best evidence of it, actually a big thing happened this week. I don't know if you saw the news. You know, Redemption Church is part of Good Faith Network, which is a justice organization. Um, You know, I think we're up to 35 different congregations from Christian, Jewish, Islamic traditions. All of us joined together to try to be good news for the poor, right? Because this God loves justice. And it was this week, you guys, Board of County Commissioners, just a mile from here, voted to give $6.5 million to buy a building and start a, a 365 days of the year homeless shelter in Johnson County. We need that. And, I mean, it was a lot of people. It wasn't just Good Faith Network, but, man, that, that was a powerful mover in this situation, so is so is this place, by the way. So are Jim and Jennifer Schmidt, especially. And the weird thing is that only those who learn to hope in God's future are drawn to this new center. It, it's a place of hope, and if you don't want to hope, you're you don't move. The fundamentalists and moralists, they don't want to be part of it because in this center, you can't control access to God. You know, you can't say who's in and out. The wind just blows. The prosperity gospel folks, they don't want to be part of this for sure. Like, because it's not about winning, you know, and uh, finding God's favor and affluence. It's about the wholeness and flourishing of all people. There's no cynicism at this center. There's no sentimentality there. Our eyes are open about the world. But we are finding God alive in the world, encountering God just as normal, you know, goofballs and broken, you know, ragamuffins. And finding that at this center, there's a new kingdom, a new ruler, and it's a kingdom of mercy and love and forgiveness. And only those who, who can tell the truth about their brokenness and follow Jesus in solidarity with, with those who are on the margins can be part of this new thing. And it's like God is just going, okay, I'm, I'm going to do something. Everything's too chaotic. I'm going to do something. And, and people are just drawn from the strangest places to this new center. And God's like, leave your old divisions and fights and, and come follow me. And it's a work, I think, of God here at a 500-year turnover that looks a lot like it did in those other 500-year rummage sales. And it, it was hopeful in, in exile in Isaiah. It was the hope of the Jewish people living under Roman occupation. It was the hope of the 12 disciples as they followed Christ. It's been at the heart of every movement of God all along. And my prayer is that as you and I open up space this Advent between the cynicism and the sentimentality,
that we can maybe find a way to hope. We can picture ourselves on the trampoline, you know, in the news center and just decide to go. Head toward the center. And we'll be drawn um, not only into uh, just a new, new space, maybe a new church community, but into like a, it's almost like a whole new reality where it's too obvious that God is with us, God is working. It's just too obvious to be cynical but it's too eyes wide open to the pain of the world to be sentimental. And that's a really, it's, it's just a really difficult thing to maintain. You know what I mean? But only those who, you know, hope find their way to this center. And ever since the days of Christ, his followers have been living at this new center. And anybody who doesn't dig their heels in can be drawn into it. And so my prayer for, for us as a congregation is that in this final week of Advent, as we're trying to dig crescendo, that we'll sense the movement, you know? We'll sense ourselves rolling slowly toward this new center. Amen? Let's pray. invite you for a moment to find a place of reverence in your heart. Think about this God who's drawing us to a new center. And think about maybe just an openness to living life in the world as a person of hope in a community of hope. You can tell the truth about how broken things are, but then can say, they don't have to be this way. Oh God, as we um, make this final turn toward Christmas Eve, Pray that you would be very present to us this week. For all of us in this room and, and those who are part of our body and somewhere else today, we pray, God, that you would be drawing us to this place of hope. The, the one that animated Isaiah the prophet, the one that captivated the early church. Pray that this idea of a new center and of the wind of your spirit blowing in the world that it would catch us all. And as we head toward Christmas Eve, I pray that you would help us to become just really radically open to you. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion.
We do this because on Christ's last night with his disciples, he had them share in the same location.